0: I had some great training on Broadway. And when you're doing a Broadway musical eight times a week, sometimes for two years, you'd better find a way to keep it fresh or you'll end up at Betty Ford's. It's just, you have to keep yourself sane. And to do that, I love being in the moment. And I think if you're not in the moment, you're missing something, uh, something very wonderful. So I have a great time.
1: It is December 7th, 2020. And you were listening to episode 24 of the Candid Clarinetist podcast. What's going on, everybody? Sam Rothstein here, acting principal clarinet with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra and host of the Candid Clarinetist podcast. Thanks for all of the positive feedback from last week's episode with Ixie Chen. We had a great conversation about entrepreneurship, and it was fantastic to talk to her about her newest initiative, the Digital Clarinet Academy. If you haven't checked out all the fantastic programs they offer, please make sure to stop by their website, digitalclarinetacademy.com. We are well on our way to meeting the 500-follower goal on Instagram by the end of the year, if you haven't spent some time on our Instagram, it's a great way to get notifications about upcoming events as well as advertisements for new episodes. You can follow us at the Candid Clarinetist. I also last week announced the opening of our new line of merchandise. So if you want a cool and easy way to support the podcast, be sure to head over to our website at candidclarinetistpodcast.com/slash/merch. As always, the best and easiest way to support the podcast is to subscribe to your, excuse me, is to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform and to share our content on social media. This week's week's guest needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway because that's just the kind of guy that I am. Meister Jack Everly is the Principal Pops Conductor of the Indianapolis Symphony, Baltimore Symphony, Naples Philharmonic, and the National Arts Center Orchestra in Ottawa, Canada. Meister Everly is the conductor of the National Memorial Day Concert and a Capital Fourth every year in Washington, D.C., and his career has spanned from the Broadway stage to some of the best orchestras and concert halls throughout the world. I'm so, so honored and pleased to welcome Meister Jack Everly to the podcast. Jack, it is so nice to see you.
0: Thanks, Sam. It's really a pleasure to be with you.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think we've seen each other since. Uh, well, I guess we saw each other this summer briefly, but we haven't worked together probably since March or February of this year, I think.
0: Yeah, sadly so.
1: Yeah, so um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'll probably bring this up a lot over this episode, but I just can't wait to get back on the stage with you, and particularly during this time. And the reason being is I wanted to bring you on to just. Um, dive into the uh, backstage and behind the scenes of the fantastic Indianapolis Yuletide Celebration, to which you are uh, the brains, brawn, and beauty of, uh, along with, uh, you know, your fantastic team, Mallory Essig and Brandi Rogers and Ty Johnson and everyone else who works on the show. So to give some background to those who aren't from Indianapolis, can you give an explanation as to what Yuletide Celebration is? And I think this one really needs an an explanation (laughs)
0: It's always hard to describe this show. It's uh, for people with an older reference. It's somewhere between Ed Sullivan and Radio City Music Hall. meet the symphony orchestra world. Yeah, sounds about right. Um, It's just everything. It's costumes and this beautiful set and, of course, lighting and choreography. And we have this incredible chorus, uh, this ensemble that sings and dances. Most of them are, are from Broadway. And then every year it's a new host or hostess. Uh, Last year was Frankie Marino from Las Vegas. And uh, we've had uh, the Mets, Angela Brown, and of course, Sandy Patty on numerous occasions. Judy McLean, who was in Mamma Mia on Broadway for over a decade. Um, We've just had some of the greatest talent uh, be the headliners, if you will, of the show. It started... uh, Well, this was to have been the 35th anniversary Mm -hmm. production, and we had it all written, of course, and then, bang, the world changed in March. So, uh, sadly, we're going to not do it this year, as everybody knows, and we're going to do this production that we have written, for the most part, next season. Good, okay. Um, Anyway, the show started 35 years ago, and I wasn't with it at that time. Um, It was a... uh, How do you say this? It was just a multidiscipline thing that the orchestra produced. Uh, It was one year when they weren't going to do a Nutcracker, I'm told. And so it became one act was uh, Modern Dance Company, Dance Kaleidoscope. And then the other act was uh, uh, carols, perhaps, and the Indianapolis Symphonic Choir. And anyway, it was like it was genuinely a concert Mm -hmm. with very little production value Tom Ramsey, then the vice president, um, decided he wanted to give it a shot in the arm and change it somehow to take it into the future. He felt it was a little antiquated in its approach. So he brought in Ty Johnson. Um, Ty had worked with maestro Raymond Leppard um, the mask of Job and some other things that Raymond wanted to have a theatrical edge to. And Ty had, uh, incredible theater background and Disney background and all these things. So Ty came in and that's when I believe Keith Lockhart was still conducting.
1: I, don't know I didn't know that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I came on board in 94, um, because Keith got this job with some orchestra in Boston. I, I, yeah. I the name leaves me for some reason. Never heard and, of them. Yeah. So, um, they were looking for a conductor for Yuletide and I was one of the two or three people that Ty interviewed in New York. I was with American Ballet Theater at that time. And I love doing Nutcracker. So actually, and I do mean that sincerely. So it was kind of hard to say no to another uh, ballet theater season of Nutcracker. But um, it it I've always since I'm from Indiana, I've always wanted to conduct the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra, and I thought this sounds like a great idea. Mm-hmm. It's dancing and singing and holiday music, and I loved all of that. So in 1994, I did my first Yuletide celebration, and the rest is history.
1: Oh, it's <laughs> it's you're continuing to write the history, I believe. So uh, we'll we'll get uh, back into Yuletide for a bit. But um, do you think that? Uh, well, let's uh, let, let me ask you this. When did you first work with the ISO? Was it exactly for this production or had you had a previous relationship with the orchestra?
0: There were a number of attempts. Um, Sue Statent, who was then the artistic head director, um, tried to work it out with my schedule to do, uh, I believe, a New Year's Eve concert or two. And for some reason, it just did not work out ever. And I was always very disappointed by that. So it, it did turn out that uh, Yuletide celebration of 1994 was my first time with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra.
1: Oh, that's very cool. And of course, you uh, you now uh, later became the principal pops conductor of the orchestra. When when did you achieve that title? Uh,
0: I believe 2000 and 2001. Okay, somewhere right around there.
1: So here's the real question: How many Yuletide shows have you done? <laughs>
0: Well, uh, I don't have an answer for that, but you'd have to do the math somehow and uh, realize that every year we are in this unique position of doing repetitive performances that number anywhere from 27 to 32. Just depends on the calendar, and most of them are sold out. So we, you know, we have this incredibly loyal audience. Uh, used, it ends up being about 40,000 people every December. Mm-hmm. which is, uh, wow. What a blessing that is. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. And you know, one thing I will say too, um, for our first, uh, or for our audience members that aren't familiar with Yuletide is that, um, well, the first thing I'm going to say is I lost my train of thought. The second thing I'm going to say is that, uh, well, we'll get back to that cause I can't remember what I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> you know how it goes, Jack. Oh, I know what I was going to say. So, There, you know, he said, there's 27 to 31 shows each time. I remember the orchestra can take shows off. We have time off, right? We have relief services that we can use. I have never seen you miss a show, and I've been here for I've done it for five years, and you just stand up there like a total champ, and just do it every night, standing the entire time, the entire two hours or hour and a half, however long it's two hours, right? Yeah, Yeah. yeah, two hours. Um, It's uh. Go ahead, go ahead. That's the easy part.
0: Yeah. That's the easy part. I mean, I I hear this often. How on earth do you do this so enthusiastically, night after night after night after night? I had some great training on Broadway, and when you're doing a Broadway musical eight times a week, sometimes for two years, you'd better find a way to keep it fresh or you'll end up at Betty Ford's. It's Mm uh it it's just you have to keep yourself sane, and to do that. I love being in the moment, and I think if you're not in the moment, you're missing something, uh, something very wonderful. So I have a great time. Uh, keeping it fresh is just—I think it's my responsibility to all the musicians to look enthused, mm-hmm. look in the moment, and be there, and really—and I—and I am. Yeah. That's the easy yeah. part.
1: And I think too, it's uh, for those who haven't been to to it. There's they build out the stage, so there's this big terraced. Set, you know, so the singers and dancers are in the front, and then the musicians and the orchestra is the backdrop. And so, you know, I always think that that the maestro does a great job of sort of connecting with people and little smiles along the way and ways to keep it fun. and and, you know, when you're getting that kind of energy from the podium, it's easy to give it back, you know. Um, maybe you don't feel the same way, but <laughs> I feel like for me, it's, you know, if if the conductor after twenty seven shows is still giving you, that kind of freshness and energy, you know, sure as heck, you can do it, you know, for all those audience members that had never seen the show before.
0: It's nice to know you look up, Sam. Occasionally. occasionally.
1: (laughs) Okay. So let's get into the process of sort of how the show comes together. Because I think you mentioned that the, the show is new every year. I mean, there's elements of it that are repeated or the same. But, you know, it's, in its collective, it's new every single year. And that is a massive undertaking. I mean, we're talking about a full-scale, singers, dancers, Broadway-type show that you have to make every year and keep it fresh and keep it new. So the first thing I wanna know is, what's what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Do you decide the host? Do you decide the, 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 the ensembles, the, the acts? Or is it you just plan the whole show and then you find people to fit those those things?
0: Oh, no, the talent comes first. Uh, First of all, we always, well, we start with the orchestra. We think, how do we best feature the orchestra this year? Fine, we make those decisions, but even that is morphing because we start every year um, planning the specifics in February and March. So, you know, we close the show on December 23rd every year, and then by February or March, we're starting the fine points of having production meetings about the next year show. Now, the host or hostess, is booked probably a year and a half two years in advance gotcha, um, gotcha. because we have to do that of course and the uh the other musical talents that are being that are guests same thing with that and then we decide well what shows them off the best and then we come up with that repertoire and then well then what's the dance feature and then blah, 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 blah. as you mentioned it's it's basically a new show every year however we learned the hard way in a way that there are two things we have to repeat every single year or the audience gets angry (laughs) Uh, and that is our staged uh twas the night before christmas that ken darby wrote beautiful music very choral moment but it's also as you know with these these large puppets that are on the shoulders of the puppeteers and they come down the aisle and it's the reindeers and it's santa and his sleigh and then we have a live santa show up as a mime and it's A very, very theatrically special thing. It's unique. Mm -hmm. And the audiences love that. Kids go crazy for that. So we know that has to be there every year. And then at the end of Act One, uh, uh, Ty Johnson, the uh, producer, with Michael Gibson, the orchestrator, years and years ago, created a tap routine that's become known as Tap Dancing Santas. Um, Michael arranged... Michael was one of the great orchestrators on Broadway. He was uh, John Kander's choice for every Broadway show John did after a certain point. And uh, Michael was just one of those delightful human beings. We miss him to this very day. Um, But that's his chart for the orchestra. And originally it was choreographed by Mercedes Ellington, Duke's granddaughter, who um, I saw on Broadway in Uh, the 70s revival of No No Nanette, and I I will never forget that. Um, Because I had just moved to New York after graduating IU. Anyway, so uh, she was a a delightful choreographer to work with, and then Jen Ladner took over as Mm -hmm. choreographer and then director as well, and has made this routine even more special. But it's the same orchestration every year, the orchestra knows it by memory, it's hysterical. After two plays, everyone just looks at you while they're playing their parts, because they know it. It's been in the repertoire now for so many years, it's like, yep, here we go, let's do it again. Yep. And that's an audience favorite. So anyway, but those are the two things we repeat every single year, because the audience just loves it. Yeah. And everything else is created anew.
1: And one comment on the Tap Dancing Santa, there's a, p- there's a part in the middle where there's stop time. Yeah. and I believe it's sort of a rite of rite of passage for each member of the orchestra to play in one of the big rests w- at least once in their career. I know I did it. I did it my first year, and I remember every year I would come in. I'm like, I'm not gonna do. Or every every concert I would come, in, okay, I'm not gonna play in the rest. And it becomes this because you do it so many times, it becomes this like matrix where you're like, okay. Uh, I'm not going to miss it this time. And then you convince yourself that it's on the other beat and you play in the hole. So I, I really think every single person has played in one of those holes. <laughs> Hopefully it hasn't been noticeable. but
0: <laughs> The does audience happen. doesn't notice it, but, I mean, it makes us laugh. Yeah, uh, to say. And, of course, there's a lot of tap dancing going on at the same time. So yeah. no one's going to hear that.
1: <laughs> but that was just a, a brief comment I had on that. Um, so you talked about sort of when you guys start planning the show. When would you say that you get the general skeleton together of it? is it just the, uh, is it like february march that's kind of like the brainstorming and then you know maybe summer is kind of when it comes together
0: yes definitely in the summer um, we and it was I don't know about 5 years ago we started having meetings every month and that didn't used to happen but we realized the show's getting more and more complex there are more and more things to decide and why why have it be a frenzy in august and september so let's just back it up and start working on it earlier and it's very helpful to do that uh, because every creative process uh, is assisted by more time, and it also allows the library um, more time to work on new arrangements and engrave them and get them ready. And you know, I, as I said, the entire show becomes more complex every single season, mm-hmm. and musically, it's, it's it's complex as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, one of your great talents among the many is uh, your ability to arrange charts. Uh, every time I see, arr Jack Everly on the corner of a piece, I'm like, all right, this is gonna be sweet. Yeah.
0: Um, uh oh. Yeah, Look no, it.
1: it's it's always great. Um, and I, I really mean that. And and uh, you, I mean you do some stuff for Yuletide now, probably not as much as you used to. Um, I don't. It maybe I am speaking on what's there. Necessary. Yeah. yeah. Um, you
0: know, we it was two years ago when we did the, um, holly jolly dollies. We call yeah, it. It's, it's a it's a great dance number. That Jen created. And so she and I went into um, our series of meetings and said, Well, what do we want for this thing? Where it's all these dolls, kind of like Radio City in a way, music hall. Um, And they're going to dance, of course. They look like little dolls and they have these large cubes, these blocks that have letters on them. They're going to spell things out. But what are we going to do? What's the music? So we hit upon doing Nutcracker. Uh, That doesn't sound entirely original, except that we also did it in the style of a lot of the great uh, dance bands of the 40s. -hmm. So it's all it's pretty much swing, most of it. And then at one point, the Offenbach Can Can comes into play just because it's silly and fun. and We can do that. And then we go back to, you know, Nutcracker. And we thought, well, that's this is good because it fits what we want to do choreographically and it gives us a nod to tchaikovsky's greatest score and everyone is always asking can the orchestra play that we don't want to do too much of it because we don't want to be in competition with companies that are actually doing the nutcracker that would that would be you know taking the thunder or the wind out of their sails and we don't really want to do that mm-hmm. um, but doing a swing version of it harkens back to another time period and, br- and we the orchestra brings to it what they do and we thought, great, this is it. So that went through one production meeting, one phase after another. Finally, we got it down to, OK, that's it. That's the piano reduction. Let's record it. Does that make sense? Yes. Then I went to orchestration. And then we had it engraved. And then we did a reading uh, for our, you know, all the new charts, as you know, that we do every uh, prior thing. And then kind of all hell broke loose because we realized a lot of it had to be nipped and tucked sure. and then changes were made and, um, it became this rather successful thing. So I, I'm very happy with it. Very proud of it.
1: Yeah. And that's a great chart. Uh, you know, for those who know, I, I always kind of hearken it to the Duke Ellington Nutcracker Suite. There's a lot of kind of, you know, similarities in terms of like the feel of it, uh, which I love. I love that so much. So, um, but yeah, it's, you know, Jack is a man of many talents and, and arranging, I think, is is just an incredible uh, talent of yours. And especially, you know, this is kind of getting off the type thing, but, you know, you always cultivate these amazing programs, and we'll kind of get into programming a little later. You cultivate these amazing, incredible programs, and it needs an overture, right? I mean, it doesn't need an overture, but a Jack Everly Show needs an overture. And so you always put together this incredible, you know, hodgepodge of whatever, it, you know, it's a... It's a you know, 60s Broadway or whatever, and then you just get all the all the greatest hits, and it's all arranged by you, and it's really amazing. So
0: they're fun to do. I, I was uh, my parents uh, always listened to pop music and Broadway shows, so as a kid, I always had the Beethoven symphonies. Yeah, I was kind of precocious little brat, and so to hear Broadway shows that my parents were listening to taught me the uh, how strong a thing a Broadway musical overture is. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to generate excitement and anticipation, and that's the whole point of an overture.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that's that's really cool. I always enjoy playing your charts, and uh, you obviously do it not only for Yuletide, but you do it for the other uh, concerts that you do as well. Um, yeah. So how can Dan, well actually let's go back, because I want to know, like you obviously you mentioned some of the, the previous hosts that we've had for the show so what is the sort of uh, impetus for deciding like okay we want this host when do we when we say okay I, I want to try somebody new this year like what is the is it just kind of like a feel thing
0: that basically comes from the producer Ty Johnson mm-hmm. the decision on how to um, when not how when to hire a particular host with particular talents. Um, Last year was Frankie Marino. And Frankie is a composer, songwriter, uh, pianist. He plays sax guitar. He's an entertainer on the strip in Las Vegas. And he's uh, just an amazing talent. And we had seen him uh, years before we decided to consider him for Yuletide. Mm -hmm. Um, The timing does have to be right we i know ty uh thought long and hard about when um we have great talents like ben crawford who's the phantom of the opera on broadway angela brown aida at the met uh of course the great sandy patty it's all when you feel the show needs it what year after year after year and then how different is it going to seem to our audiences that's what he's great at. He sees a, a big picture here of ah, and then two years from now we'll need to go in that direction. And though once that's decided, we know basically how to form the repertoire for these talents.
1: Yeah, and you know I will point out last year's show was incredible. I mean it was my favorite one that we've done so far. And Frankie is such a great host. I mean he just has this way. Uh, I I think you know he's one of the greatest entertainers. Uh, just pure entertainers right now uh, performing, and Definitely. Just, and and you know it was a new show, a new host. Nobody had any idea how it would turn out, and I I mean we I had never seen that many sellouts for Yuletide. Tide. Usually the first yeah. couple of weeks, I mean they're they're full, but they're not like sold out. But this was like the entire run was sold out. Cause I think yeah, it was it, very exciting to yeah. see
0: that. I must say, you know, we had uh, you remember we worked with Frankie briefly and the Pops season when we did uh, a tribute to Sinatra, and then we created uh, Frankie's one-man symphony show. Mm -hmm. And that's when we thought, as we were watching him do that, we thought, ah, here's someone with the chops to be a master of ceremonies, and because we knew he was a great entertainer. And to be honest, uh, I don't think Frankie would mind this at all. He would, when he got into rehearsals that year for the Christmas show, he was a nervous wreck. He looked around at all this talent. He told us this in the in rehearsal room. And we did this, but he just had come in and we had already staged a few things prior to his arrival. And he watched us all do this, and his eyes got really big. And he said, and I can't really repeat it in a podcast, but it brought down the house in the rehearsal studio. Everyone thought, OK, well, you just broke the ice. This is great
1: yeah.
0: uh, to see what a regular guy he was. And he, he said, I don't know how I'm going to live up to this. He, he was really sincerely that humble about it. I mean, we knew what a great talent he was, is, and how he was going to transform that year's production. Everything he brought to it was a different tone that we hadn't had before. And uh, Ty knew that was going to happen, and sure enough, it did.
1: Yeah, he was was really terrific, and I'll I'll tell a brief uh, story about him. So when he came to do his show, he's an incredibly nice and humble guy also. I'll put that out there. We ended up going out with him after one of his shows, and his band was there and everything, and just hanging out, and... You know he'll tell you anything you want to know, right? So you know I wrote, uh, toured with Shania Twain, you know whatever what he just told. And so I remember he was telling, and I've told you this story is uh, he has trouble sticking to a script, just because oh, he's yeah. very impulsive. <laughs> you know just because that's that's what his shows are. He's like yeah for my shows in Vegas like they give me a bottle of whiskey and I just they shout out what song they want me to play and I just do it. You know, um, and so he kept messing with the opening to one of your cues. Like, like he kept doing it different. And you're like, you need to tell me what you're going to do here. And, and, uh, he, and he said, he turned to you and he said, how about this? How about when I'm ready for you to start, I'll point, turn at you and point. And he said, okay. So I thought that was a rather funny story. and just kind of just, just shows you, you know, how spontaneous he was. And he was great mm-hmm. last year, just interacting with whatever was happening. Like sometimes just something would happen and he's just boom, just so fast on it. So, um, you
0: know. We, uh, we, (laughs) one of his fears of doing the show was that it was scripted. It's always scripted. It seems spontaneous, but it's not because we have all these lighting cues to call and we have, you know, stage cues to call and things start to move. Actors start to come on stage, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that, that was new to him, the whole idea that if you don't say this line, the rest of this isn't going to happen. Right. You won't change the lights. Nothing will go on if you don't say the line. And so he was kind of terrorized by that. But we got it down. We would run lines with him for the first week constantly, and especially when it came time for cues. You know, I said, Frankie, we have to have a cue. Yeah. You just can't <laughs> stop talking and leave the stage. <laughs> So this whole theatrical approach was very new to him, and I must say, he really got on board with it. And it made him a nervous wreck for the first week, but he was—he's such a delight to work with. You don't care. You yeah,
1: know? yeah, a terrific uh, guy and performer. If you haven't looked him up, uh, Frankie Moreno—he's a lot of solo charts out and stuff as well. Follow him and follow him on Instagram. Just a, a great person and an incredible performer, and I you know I, I can't wait to see him back at some point, um which i'm I'm assuming he will be based on how oh, successful yeah. it was. So, uh, so let's talk about the rehearsal process because obviously, you know, we're a symphony orchestra. We play music every week, and so we can't, you know take I mean, I suppose we could, but say take September through November and rehearse for Yuletide, you know, so how can and, and in addition to the actors and singers and stuff, How condensed is this rehearsal process and how efficient does it have to be?
0: Oh, super efficient, absolutely. Um, Now, what we have started doing over the past, oh, I don't know, five or six years, is uh, we have finished a lot of uh, the new arrangements early and this never used to happen, but now we are. We work on them, as I mentioned earlier, during the summer. So, when it comes time for the regular season, We try to find a space in a Pops rehearsal in September, October, or November to do one new chart that has been finished, engraved, and we want to hear it and give it an an advanced reading prior to the actual intensive rehearsals for the show. And that has helped immeasurably. And the library has been so helpful at getting this stuff engraved, parts created. And then after we hear the orchestra play it, side read it, then we take it back and do tweaks and adjust it accordingly. Um, so that's one part of the rehearsal process. The cast comes in from goodness knows where, mostly New York, and, and fortunately many great towns that are local. And they start rehearsing uh, the week before Thanksgiving on the third floor of the ISO. And uh, so we set things that are in place every year, like Sanitap. Um, and get that going. that's that has quite a few people that are not part of the uh, rest of the ensemble, for example. So um, and we have our uh, Zitzprobe with the orchestra, wherein we read in the morning more of the new charts, and then the entire cast comes in. Well, we break for lunch, as everyone knows. Um, it's a traditional thing. So the cast and the orchestra mingle and have a great lunch, and then we go back into, the rehearsal in the afternoon and do all the vocal charts with the entire company lined up on the edge of the stage and the entire ISO. And it's, it's a wonderful feeling. It's, uh, to hear all that music, uh, for the new show and everyone's kind of, you know, super enthused and some people are teary eyed and it's exciting. And then there's Thanksgiving. So the cast actually has Thanksgiving day off, um, and in Indianapolis, we have this wonderful festivity on the circle called circle of lights, and that's Friday night. And often, um, uh, Yuletide has a part of it. So that has to be rehearsed. Uh, but the cast comes back into the rehearsal hall on that weekend after Thanksgiving. Uh, the orchestra has that time off, uh, which is wonderful, but the cast keeps rehearsing. And then the following week, we start doing tech rehearsals of the entire show, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and we open on Friday. Of course, last year it was different because the calendar hit uh, in a very, very different way, and we backed everything up much earlier. Um, I That proved to be so successful. I hear... Uh, rumblings that that may be the new norm yeah I don't you know, know i was gonna I,
1: say because yeah uh, and and uh, man if any of my colleagues are watching i apologize but that w- it was actually really nice and you know why it was because all those families you know because basically what happened last year was we had thanksgiving day and then opening night was saturday night i think or, so yeah because yeah, i think friday night was our dress rehearsal or no friday yeah. afternoon because we didn't want to do it during the circle oh. of lights
0: You're right. You're right.
1: And, um, but all those families were home for Thanksgiving. And so the first weekend you had all these people, uh, in town and they went and saw the show. And so you build up this momentum right from the start rather than after Thanksgiving, everyone's dispersed back to school or whatever. Um, so it was actually kind of nice, but I, I had a feeling that (laughs) that might be the thing. Um, but it's, it's a great thing. I mean, it really is just a great thing. And I think that, uh, you know, one of the first things I, I hear back from people when they ask me what I do is, oh, I play at the Indianapolis Symphony. Oh, my family and I go to Yuletide every year. I, I, I mean, almost inevitably, that's what I hear back. And so it's just become this kind of, you know, like the Nutcrackers tradition in other places. For some reason here, like the Yuletide celebration is the Indianapolis tradition. So do you want to speak on on kind of like the loyalty that you see from all the patrons and everything because of this?
0: Well, that is a wonderful thing. Um, you know, my dad used to come to the show um, the first, golly, six years I was doing it. Uh, he lived in Richmond, Indiana, and he loved the music of the holiday season, as uh, do I. So, And that comes in very handy if you're doing the, the show for 25 years. Um, but he used to always say to me when he would come into the lobby, And have that experience, which is, if you don't know what that is, boy, that's unique. Um, We have this incredible Wurlitzer console out there and this brilliant theater organist. And we have characters of the holiday season. And it's just beautifully decorated. So the lobby is an experience unto itself. And my dad used to say, wow, look at all these families. Dad used to own a shoe store in Richmond. And he said, look at all the little kids dressed up. Isn't that neat? That's really special. I said, how'd you like the show, dad? He said, oh, yeah, the show's fine. But <laughs> look at all these families, yeah. you know. <laughs> and I, I agree with him. I see this, these families having this experience out there. And year after year after year, we're talking the third generation now, considering the show is 35 years old, mm-hmm. of people, children, grandchildren. Uh, it's, it's really special, to see that and to know it's happening every single show. You just sense it. You know, we're on stage or on the platform. Cue, go. starts the show. The drape goes up and we hear that audience response. You think, yeah, these are people who really want to be here. Mm-hmm. love what this experience is. Yeah. I love that.
1: Great. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, my mother-in-law, so last year, all she wanted was for all of us to get tickets and go see me play in the show and everything. They live in Vincennes, Indiana, which is south, uh, southeastern, no, southwestern Indiana. Excuse me. Um, and they got tickets. My nieces came, my sister-in-law and, and brother or uh, her husband came. Um, and my mother-in-law was devastated this year that they couldn't come back it was like her favorite day of all time because they were all together they were all doing something fun the kids were happy they got to see me play like it was just and so she like has already been talking about it and she's like we need to go again next year so it's a it's it's pretty easy to get sucked in i feel like it's just an experience
0: it's a great feeling the whole experience
1: yeah, absolutely. So, Jack, uh, let's move and talk about your career a little bit, uh, other than just Yuletai, because obviously you you know, you know, work all over the country and, and the world. So, um, you know, you've worked with a lot of these orchestras, and I want to know what makes the Indianapolis Symphony special to you?
0: Over the years, uh, I've been fortunate enough to work with the ISO. Um, I've come to really appreciate the not just the musicality. Um, you know, when you're on a certain echelon of professionalism, you, you expect musicality. Um, everyone has trained for that all their lives and they're incredible at it. But beyond that, there is a flexibility and there is an awareness of what we're doing now by that. I mean, yes, I know last week was Bruckner and that was wonderful. Um, And it was very soul-stirring and all those things. And this week, guess what? It's a tribute to Frank Sinatra. And (laughs) (laughs) being able to turn on a dime, it's something that orchestras in North America have gotten on board with over the past many decades. But there's something very, very special about the way the musicians of the ISO do it. There's an enthusiasm there. There's a, a genuine love of doing it of being challenged. Um, yeah, last week's Beethoven or Bruchner or, or whatever was great and we needed that and that was great for our souls. What are you gonna do this week that's gonna be great for our souls, Mr. Pops? And <laughs> that, that's a challenge, let me tell you, mm. when the musicians are that good. Um, but it's fun. It can be, you know, films. I adore doing films. and. Uh, what it requires of the musicians is just mind-blowing. It's like, yes, we're all doing this, and I said you don't have to be on the click track, but I'm on the click track, and if you're not with my downbeat, we're going to be playing Darth Vader's theme when Princess Leia is on the screen. Right. You can't do that, and it's it's so impressive how this very densely stuff orchestrated stuff can be played with such elan by you know the ISO and and with that pacing, it says, we're in sync with the film. It's just this incredible musical flexibility that makes it so fulfilling for me.
1: Yeah, and well, I got to say, Jack, that, uh, you know, and I hope it's okay that I call you Jack. I know that was a whole shtick in Yuletide one year, Maestro ever later, Jack. So.
0: But you may call me Maestro, yes. Okay,
1: yes, yeah. Uh, so, Maestro. Uh, I got to say that, you know, I love, I mean, I love everything we do at the ISO, but I think quite possibly the Pops department is the best thing that we do there. Um, and it's so easy, it's so easy for orchestras to just, you know, hire out a show, you know, pay for a show, get some, you know, pretty bad charts, some okay soloists, and just, okay, we did a Pops week, you know, everyone's happy. The, qual- the artistic quality, and this goes back to your arranging and everything, that you put into every single note in the Pops uh, shows is, it, it, it is revealing it it's it's noticed it's noticeable for the audience it's noticeable for the musicians you know the charts are good it's not just um you know somebody who doubled a bunch of piano vocals i mean it's it's you know there's important parts for each instrument and i I, that's a credit to your you and your team and and that all that stuff quality matters when it comes to that stuff and i think that that's um you know that's probably why you get the response from the musicians that you do is because you give it back to us in that regard. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so I want to know. Let's 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 play a little hypothetical here, and you know, you can answer or not, but I want to know what is Jack Everly's dream pops program.
0: Oh, what is it? I don't know how to answer that. I mean, that's that is a question I do hear from time to time. Um, I don't know how to answer it because in normal times, and they will return. My dream is whatever I'm doing. And I wish you watch it, I suppose, but it's, it's true. When I'm allowed to do things like John Williams' film scores with the films, and then turn around and do a tribute to Sinatra, and then turn around and do Yuletide Celebration, and then a Broadway repertoire and how to reinvent the wheel when you do three different Broadway programs every year or three different Hollywood programs every year. It's all about the approach and the creativity of creating uh, each of those, with a different arc to be one step ahead of your audience and to present it in a different and fresh way. That's the creativity. Mm-hmm. And it's a dream to do that. And so I'm, you know, it's a cliche to say, yeah, I'm living the dream. But when I'm doing all this stuff, I am. Mm-hmm. So there isn't any one specific program. Um, it's I'm doing it. Yeah. And I, I'm really loving it.
1: Good. I'm I'm glad to hear that. I, well, maybe we can narrow it down a little bit. Favorite Broadway overture. Let's do original orchestrations. Broadway oh yeah, overture. sure.
0: Well, the most famous and the one that's considered perfection is Gypsy. Yeah, that's what I was. Everyone to say. knows that. Mm-hmm. Um. Even you know that, and you played even a day. lot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think they played it before. There are yeah. lots of
0: great overtures that nobody knows because they're from flop musicals. Um, High Spirits, uh, great overture, and nobody knows that musical. And it was in the same year as Hello, Dolly. Okay. And Tammy Grimes, B. Lily, mm-hmm. and it's based on Noel Coward's Blythe Spirit, and it's got a fabulous score from the '60s great overture and nobody knows it. you 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 couldn't possibly program it mm-hmm. uh, the audience would just look at you and then you'd hear crickets after you performed it uh, yes. i did i went out on a limb one year we had we had florence henderson um guesting with us and she had uh, an indiana connection way way back and she is a delightful was a delightful human being and i remember growing up also in the 60s she did a broadway musical because she was a great soprano. Um, she and Shirley Jones were under contract to Richard Rogers, and they became the the next um, uh, soubretts, if you will, in Oklahoma and Carousel. And uh, those are the only two sopranos under personal contract to Richard Rogers. Anyway, she did a show that Noel Coward wrote called The Girl Who Came to Supper. This is based on the Prince and the Showgirl that Marilyn Monroe and uh, Olivier did, delightful comedy. Anyway, they made it into a musical. Probably a mistake, but they did it. And um, Jose Farrar, Florence Henderson, Tessie O'Shea and I reconstructed the Overture, which all the parts were thought to be lost. And of course, naturally I sleuth around and find these things. They were in a warehouse in London because that's where Noel Coward decided he wanted those parts to be. So after months of of looking for these things, I found them. I put it together with the Entrez Act, and then we performed it. I said, so we had a reason to do something that was so obscure that I wasn't going to hear crickets when it was over and or really anger the audience. And then I explained, this was Florence's show on Broadway, and she was highly acclaimed in this part, blah, 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 blah. So I love Esoterica. And I went off on a tangent there, but you really have to be careful on how you program that stuff. Mm. Uh, You don't want to turn an audience against you.
1: Yeah, right. probably can't use that one as the overture, I would imagine. Maybe not. Yeah uh well that's really cool and i i think this uh you know just you talking about all this stuff just shows your versatility and and i mean you've really just done it all uh, in terms of film music and broadway and you know you mentioned you were the uh, conductor at abt for a while can you talk about that experience just so oh, i'm sure. just going to dig at you for a little while because i just love <laughs> hearing about all your experiences i mean you've just really you've seen it all and you've you know you've worked with all the all the great people so
0: i had um I was doing a national company of uh, the Marvin Hamlisch show called they're playing our song. And, uh, the dance captain said, you know, my husband is uh, the tech director of American ballet theater. And, um, I know you love opera and ballet and, um, they are going to be looking for a conductor in a, a year, uh, a staff conductor. And so I can get you an introduction. And I said, that'd be great. Thanks, Amy. Um, so she did. And I interviewed with the then music director of ABT, and he said, "Why don't you just come into the pit at the Met, just stand there and watch how a conductor in the world of ballet coordinates 85 musicians with the dancers?" I said, "Wonderful." So I did that for a season, um, and then that music director came out to LA to see the showboat that I was doing with Donald O'Connor. And he, I guess he assumed, oh, well, now that I see this, this guy actually can conduct, I guess. Um, and so they did a tryout with me. And this is when Barishnikov was running the company. And I did, uh, the first week was the Dorati arrangement of Strauss music to, they call the ballet graduation ball, one act, and the following week at the Kennedy Center, I did uh, Cinderella full-length Prokofiev, and then we moved to Boston for the last week, and I did Romeo and Juliet, Prokofiev, whole thing. Um, I mean, for someone who has basically done their playing our song and Hello, Dolly, this was a bit of a stretch. Yeah. Uh, so I was, I was a nervous wreck, uh, you know, but I understood pacing and choreography and tempo and all that, I guess. So after the performance of Romeo and Juliet, Um, the wonderful Georgina Parkinson, who was uh, also a great ballerina. She was one of their ballet mistresses at ABT. She looked at Misha and said, oh, Misha, Misha, and she points to me, we had just finished uh, Romeo and Juliet, and she said, what about him, what about him? Because she knew this was the deciding performance, and he squinted and looked at me, and he went, oh, yeah, he's okay, we keep him. (laughs) And thus, my career at ABT began. And I was there for 14 years, and I became the music director, and it was a really great experience. Working with Misha especially, high point of anyone's career. Um, Very musical guy, dry, oh my, uh, defines at time dour, but he had a great sense of humor underneath all that. And I really respected him. Those were some incredible years, ABT.
1: Yeah, very cool. And and it's nice, uh, you know, you, you have a little bit of the, uh, I, I don't know if I'm speaking, the the Arthur Fiedler thing where, like, we'll play a, a Pops concert, but you'll stick in some classical selections. Um, you yeah. know, like, I loved when we did the French program and we got to play Bolero along with Levian Rose, you know, like, stuff like that. I think it's really Fantastic. I, I think it's you
0: make it sound like Bolero, La Vie Rose mashup. It yeah, wasn't that,
1: <laughs> yeah. We'll we'll consult Steve Hackman for that next time. Thank you. Um, yeah. So you before we were, we were chatting, uh, you um, for those watching live, there's a there's two stockings behind you, and you said there was a story about that. And so I'm going to give you an opportunity to, to tell that story.
0: Well, first of all, I'm in Florida right now. Mm-hmm. I'm doing holiday concerts next week with the Naples Phil, so. This I brought these with me because I knew we were going to have this podcast, and this takes it back to Yuletide celebrations. So there I am in 1994, conducting the ISO for the first time for these performances of the Christmas show. And, you know, I was feeling like, okay, I'm, this is an audition. I've, I'm feeling like ugh, I have to be on my whatever because uh, I'm being looked at as as all performers and especially conductors are, of course. Um, at the conclusion of the last performance, which was, I don't know, at that point it was 27, I think. Um, as I was turning around, this stocking, the small one, was being lowered from the fly loft. And I turned around and there it was in front of me. And this is tape and it says, Maestro Jack. And this really great guy, we knew him as Flyman Dan. He operated the flies, and anything that flew in for the show, he was in charge of. He's no longer with us, bless him. That was lowered, and it was meant as a gift from the crew. And there is this thing that if you have been accepted by not just the musicians, that comes first, of course, but by the stage crew, you know there's some part of your humanity that is thought to be worthwhile. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this is on my dressing room door ever since 1994 because Flyman Dan lowered that so that I would see that as a gift. It was filled with things, candy and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And I have never forgotten that ever since. So that's pretty special for me.
1: Yeah, what a sweet story, and I think that's that's a good way of, you know, because it really is, they always say, uh, and this this I believe is used a lot in hyperbole, but they always say it's the Yuletide family, and it, it does feel like that, you know. I think for a lot of other groups or a lot of other collections of people, it can be a little, you know, repetitive or what, what have you, but for this group it really feels like something. It feels like something's happening, you know. Um, it does feel
0: that way. It is a cliche. It's like, oh, it's my family, but it, it really does feel that way. Uh, not a dysfunctional one, I might add. It, it really it feels good. Well, it's <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: Yeah, to to tell another story, and to sometimes the musicians get a little uh, creative in the middle of the runs. And so, you know, we have, like, uh, one of our horn players has a couple of different Santa hats that he brings. Oh, yes. Uh, one's very tall. Uh,
0: the year, uh, he shall remain nameless. The year, the first year he brought that particular hat, it was a, you know, it's a large, typical red stocking with fr- white fur trim. Um, there was a mechanism in it. Uh, that made you know at one point the little fur white fur ball was hanging over and then whoop, it would go up thank you very much so but he didn't i had no idea that was going to happen until it's suddenly there and this is during tap dancing Santa's. i'm in hysterics i can't stop laughing i can barely conduct and he just had that that look on his face that okay i got you yeah, I have now broken you up entirely. You can barely function as a performer, and it's all because I did it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it's it's such a fun time, and it's making me I really miss it. Uh, I mean, I'm enjoying the extra time I have with my wife and my family and everything. But uh, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to next year. Knock on wood. Um, hopefully, everything goes well with the vaccine and whatnot, and then we can. Yes absolutely get back to doing what we do best and doing what we all love to do and performing for all these wonderful families in Indiana um, and Jack before I let you go I just I always give my guests an opportunity to sort of just have the floor whatever you want to say last words if you have any shout outs or advice or, or just just you know a soliloquy it's the 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 uh, the floor is yours as it usually is
0: oh uh, gosh um, I'll just be kind of saccharine and kind of very sentimental. We we, uh, we are all in this together. This is tough on everybody. Um, I have so many friends who are performers, great musicians in orchestras, Broadway performers. It's even tougher on dancers and singers right now. We're finding ways one small step at a time to get back to some sort of normalcy in the orchestra world. We'll have to keep clawing our way back. It'll happen. I know it's going to happen, but this is something we have not gone through before. Uh, this pretty much humanity, naturally. And for performers, and for all of us who express our souls by virtue of the instruments we play, singers who sing words, emotions, oh my heavens, this has been just soul-wrenching as it has been for everyone, truly, um, but have faith, we'll get back. It's just slower than we'd like, and it's traumatizing, we'll get back, Yeah. so everyone hang in there.
1: Absolutely, and uh, Jack, I just I can't thank you enough for just taking even an hour out of your day to spend with me. Uh, it's been wonderful to see you, wonderful to talk with you about this and relive all these great memories. Um, I've only been here. This is my sixth season, but uh, it feels like uh, you know. Even the first year I was there, it felt like I'd been here my entire life. So, and you're a big part of that. So, thank you so much. Uh, the musicians miss you dearly, and we cannot wait to be back on that stage with you, wearing our phallic Santa hats again. <laughs> but uh, thank you, Jack. It's been it's been really great. And uh, enjoy my your pleasure. time in Florida. And uh, I thank will uh, talk to you again soon. Um, so. For our new listeners out there, we are making our final push in 2020 to reach 500 Instagram followers. So make sure to check us out on Instagram at the Candid Clarinetist. Also, be sure to stop by our website at candidclarinetistpodcast.com, where you can find more information about myself, the podcast, and links to all of our content platforms. Once again, I am Sam Rothstein, and thanks for tuning in to the Candid Clarinetist Podcast.